Morning City Church, thank you for having me. It's really a privilege to be here, and thank you so much. Um, so I'm Will Cody. I'm originally from Chattanooga. I, um, uh, one year ago, I started at Austin Peay State University at doing campus ministry for RUF, and I'm loving it. I'm loving being back in Tennessee. I'm loving being so close to Nashville. Um, our text today is Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. If you could turn there, or I think it's in your bulletin as well. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, where in about two weeks he's going to be crucified. And Jesus is speaking to this thronging crowd that comes to him as he's making his way toward Jerusalem. And he tells them the following story from Luke chapter 18, which I'm about to read. All right, let's hear the Lord Jesus speak to us today, too. He, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would teach us your truth this morning and that your truth would set us free to humbly love and serve one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I have a little bit of an embarrassing story, so don't make fun of me after this if I tell you, okay? So I went to college at the University of Tennessee with uh, Colin, with um, Will Mooney, with um, John Patton, he preached here recently. And then after college, I went to um, Korea, and I, South Korea, and I taught English for eight years there. And I got involved with this church plant, started going to seminary online, and we're all getting to this point where I was, I was preaching at this church. And one Sunday, I was preaching at this church, and there were these two um, Korean-looking girls that came in. So our church was for expats, and it was also for any you know, Koreans that spoke English. So I was preaching, and I saw these two girls out in the congregation. They looked uh, Korean. They were about college-aged. And I noticed something. They were, like, really into my sermon especially one of them, and they were just like going like this and like all these great things. I was like, man, they are really getting me. They are really, they are some, finally, somebody understands how great of a preacher I am. And so uh, after the sermon, I came, uh, kind of ran into them, and I have to be welcoming and have to kind of hear how great my sermon was. So I introduced myself to them, and I asked them their names, and they kind of look at each other and kind of laugh and giggle a little bit, and then one of them says, I could barely understand her. She said, we... Uh, English? No. <laughs> so I realized that they didn't understand anything I was saying the whole sermon. Everything, nothing that, none of my points was landing on them. Nothing, nothing. Didn't make any, everything got flipped upside down in that minute, in that moment. And I realized that they, they were not having this conversion level experience right here in front of me. They were actually just being really sweet, polite, nice listeners, really good listeners. And what appeared to be going on on the outside, and I also realized how, um, foolish I was being that whole time. But what happened on the outside, what was, seemed to be going on on the outside with these girls was very different from what was going on on the inside. I didn't know until they actually spoke what was actually going on inside of them as, as during the service. 
Now, Jesus tells a similar story here about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And from the outside, the conclusion that you would draw about these men is very different from the actual inner experience that they were having. And we find that out once we hear them speak. One of the themes in Luke, one of the great themes in Luke is this idea of the great reversal. That what we would expect, those things, the things on the outside, the normal way that the world works gets flipped upside down in God's coming kingdom. Uh, for example, in the very first chapter of Luke, remember Mary, she is pregnant with Jesus. She comes to visit Elizabeth and she breaks into this prophecy. In the, and this is one of the themes that starts out Luke. She says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's what's going on all through Luke. And that's what's going on in our text today. Jesus says at the very end of this story, which we're about to get into, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So those that are mighty, those that are strong, those that are powerful, those that are, look good in the eyes of the world, those that have it together, that seem like they have it together, God will bring them down in dishonor. And those that are weak, those that are powerless, those that are disdained in the eyes of the world, God will lift them up and exalt them. And if it's true that God exalts the humble, as Jesus says in our text, we are going to see three responses from his people in our text. If God exalts the humble, then we should, you should, let go of your righteousness. That's point one. Point two, we're going to, it means that we should humble ourselves. And point three, it means that you should show mercy. So our first point, because God exalts the humble, we should let go of our righteousness. Look with me in verse nine. You have it in, in, in your insert. Jesus is speaking to this general crowd, but unlike many other parables, Luke shares with us who Jesus is speaking to in this crowd. Luke says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So Jesus is speaking to these, this crowd, and he chooses, instead of just saying, hey, stop trusting in your righteousness, he chooses to tell them a story instead. So let's look at this story. Consider, let's look at the first half of the story, starting in verse 10. Jesus says, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the setting for Jesus' story is the temple in Jerusalem. Every one of his listeners would have been familiar with this setting. And in walks two men, and the first is a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the conservative religious leaders in Israel at this time, and we have these, we have very negative connotations of, with, when it comes to Pharisees, right? Because of the way they treated Jesus, they tried to trip him up, they tried to, I mean, they, ultimately, they, what they did and said led to his being crucified. But in, for the original audience, they did not have that connotation. And it's kind of hard to come up with a modern parallel for how, how the Pharisees were viewed and thought of. But in this time, in this context, Pharisees were closer to actually being the models of Jew Jewish society. They were like the ideal, this was the ideal Jewish life, what they were doing and the way that they lived. They, for example, they just lived like, they lived this, uh, with these crazy standards that they held themselves to. They, they uh, knew the Bible better than anybody in here knows their Bible, probably. Um, they believed the Bible as well. They were popular and they were respected. We don't have, you know, in our society today, we are very critical. We are very skeptical of power, people with power, especially people with religious power. We're very skeptical. So it's really hard to understand exactly how 
they were viewed in this culture. But for the people that are listening, they respected, they looked up to, they wanted to be like the Pharisees. And if you're in the crowd listening, you have no idea where this is going to end up, where this story is going to end up. This is like in night Shyamalan, you know, ending for these people, like 2,000 years before his first movie. So the Pharisee, right, he's standing by himself, and he's about to pray. And on the outside, it looks like this, like, pious, sweet moment, this private, sweet moment. But then he opens his mouth, and we get a glimpse of what is inside this man. He prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Amen. Now that is a funny prayer, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of weird. It starts off kind of nice. He says, I thank you. And you're like, okay, that's good. You know, some gratitude. That's a good way to start a prayer. Um, what could go wrong? Then it gets a little weird. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Okay, so that could be good. It could be bad. It could be like, you know, there but for the grace of God go I kind of thinking. You know, it, like that person's in a miserable situation, and I deserve to be there too, but God was gracious to me. That could be what he's saying, but the prayer goes on. So then it gets a little weird. He goes on to say that he's thankful that he's not like other men. He's not like extortioners. He's not like the unjust. He's not like the adulterers. Or even, you kind of imagine him like, even uh, that tax collector over there. Thank you for not making me like him. We discover that he's not thankful that he's, he's not in other people's situations. He is thankful that he is not a loser like these other losers. He's not this immoral, shameful loser like this tax collector. That's what he's thankful for. So by the end, you start to wonder exactly who was he thankful for at the beginning? Who was he thankful to at the beginning? Because uh, it looks like he's just going through this list of boxes in his head. He's chick- clicking off these boxes of people that he's better than. And not only that, but over and beyond this, he's got two more things, he, two more brownie points he wants to add on top of this. He also fasts twice a week, which is not required. You know, God, was re- God required Israel to feast a lot. They were required to fast once a year, the Day of Atonement. He also ties everything he gets. So he scrupulously gives away 10%. Like if somebody gave him a cookie after church, he would like divide out 10% and then, I don't know, sacrifice it or give it to somebody else. Um, So by the end of the prayer, you start to really understand who is really getting all of this honor here. Um, It would be like if you heard, like if you got, I don't know if you guys do community groups or small groups, but if you heard somebody be like, in your prayer group, they were like, God, I thank you that I'm not like a non-Christian. I thank you that I'm not like this bag, a backslidden Christian or a non-Christian. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't slack off at work. I don't look at pornography. And I'm not like Jimmy here. He's a terrible dad. He's a terrible, <laughs> he's a terrible friend. I read my Bible every morning. I go to church three times a week. And I go on mission trips and I tell people about Jesus. And I also never go over the speed limit. Amen. (laughs) That would be wild, right? Notice that all those things are good things. And all the things that the Pharisee says, those are all good things as well. But what is the problem? The problem is that the Pharisee is taking these good, righteous deeds, and maybe objectively they are good things. The problem is he is trusting in them. This is the center of his life, is his righteousness. He's trusting in his good deeds, in his good life. These make me worthy. This makes God favor me. This makes me better 
than other people. This atones for the bad things I've done. I've, even the evil sickness in my heart, somehow this is going to make me feel better. This is going to give me righteousness in spite of all of this. And the result is that this man goes home in verse 14. Look at, and look at verse 14. We'll get to it in a minute. But he goes home not right with God. God rejects him. He is rejected. He has all of these good deeds, and he is rejected for all of these good deeds. Now, right here, we have to ask this question. What is it in ourselves that we hold up, or sometimes we're maybe tempted to hold up to God, hold up to ourselves to prove it to ourselves, or hold it up to others to prove it to them that we are righteous. We might be even good at, I'm really good at hiding it. I'm really good at hiding all these places in my life. We might be able to hide it better than the Pharisee does. But have you ever thought about that? Like when you get criticized, for example, when things in your life, when you get, um, something happens at work, you get fired or lose your job or demoted or something like that. Um, when you're feeling guilty or hard on yourself, when the, maybe the point for your very existence is questioned, what is it that you naturally gravitate toward? What is it that you naturally meditate on, bring to your mind to make you feel better? Um, this could be, I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, this totally applies. Is it, for example, your success in your education, your success at your job, despite all these obstacles, this is what you hold up, at least I did this. Um, is, it, is it that you're a good parent? I have three children, they're um, young children, and I just noticed this tendency in my heart Oh, man, I'm a better parent than them. Awesome. I'm such a good father. Or maybe, you, maybe it's that you're a better parent than your parents. Or maybe it's that I think as your, my children grow up, the tendency is going to be probably how successful my children is. That's my righteousness. Or maybe it's that you haven't had sex outside of marriage before. Or maybe it's that you recycle or you help your friends to recycle and take care of the earth. Or maybe it's that you read the Bible a lot or you know a lot of theology. Or maybe it just feels good sometimes to think about some loser you know and think about how much better you are than them. Maybe you tell God this stuff. Maybe you tell yourself this. Maybe you tell other people this. Maybe very subtly let other people know about this. Um, I heard a pastor one time, he's like, what do you think about the first, I think it was, he said, what do you think about the first 30 minutes in the morning? What do you think about when you wake up? Where does your mind naturally tend toward? And I, this was years ago, I was in college, and I was like, I tried it, and I realized, man, you know what I've been doing every morning? I'm getting ready, I'm taking a shower, and all I'm doing is arguing with people in my head. I'm just arguing with people, I'm letting, I'm bringing what I think would be their arguments, and I'm just trouncing their arguments. And it makes me, and I was like, why am I doing this? Oh, okay, it makes me feel like I have worth when I go in the world that I can, that I'm smarter than other people. It's this little pep talk I was doing, to, weird pep talk I was doing to myself in the morning. And I realized this, this was one way that I was bringing up my righteousness so I could feel better. Where does your mind go? What do you meditate on when your guilt comes up or you have a sense of, your sense of worth gets questioned? These are all probably good things, but Jesus says to let it go. Jesus says, let it go. Let go of your righteousness. Your righteousness doesn't make you safe. Your righteousness doesn't make you worthy. Your righteousness doesn't give you any more of a purpose for existing. Your righteousness does not remove your guilt. Jesus says, let go of your righteousness and humble yourself instead. And this is our second point. Because God exalts the humble, we should humble ourselves. There's another man in this story 
the tax collector. So when this character is introduced to the original audience, they would have had the complete opposite connotation when it comes to the Pharisee. In first century Jewish culture, Jewish uh, the tax collectors, they were classified right along with, with murderers, with robbers, with prostitutes. Like you, it was totally, it was totally cool, totally allowed. You could break the eighth commandment. You could lie to a, uh, you could lie to a tax collector. You totally lie. Ninth commandment? Ninth commandment. You could totally lie to a tax collector. And the reason that they were so despised was that yes, they could, well, one reason is they could charge you whatever they want uh, for taxes. But the real reason was who, are the Jewish tax collectors working for? Where is this tax money going? And who is it that if I don't pay my taxes, whose army is going to come to my door and take it by force? It's Rome. It's the Roman Empire. So these tax collectors, these Jewish tax collectors were collaborators with Rome. They, are, they were objectively the untrustworthy, often rich, opportunistic, parasitic traitors. That's who the tax collectors were. And like with this Pharisee, it's kind of hard to identify who this might be in our culture, who this might be in your life. And one reason is a little bit different than the Pharisee reason. One reason is that because people like the tax collectors, these pariahs in in cultures, are so relegated outside, are often relegated outside of the sphere of of, uh, redeemable. They're outside of the sphere even of being human. I remember like, so it's hard to see them. So I remember like 10 years ago, I was in, when I was in Korea, and um, there was those uh, riots in London, and I asked this British colleague of mine that I was working with, I was like, what, what is going on in, in London? Uh, who are these people? And he was like, oh, they're just trash. And I was like, what? I was like, no, but who are they? I don't understand what's going on. He was like, don't worry about it. They're scum. And I was like, okay, I, he would not, he could, that's all I could say about these people. And uh, just thought it was so interesting because this guy was a love for humanity kind of person. But these folks didn't qualify for him as human. They were outside of the realm of humanity. And that sounds a lot like how the Pharisee and others probably thought about tax collectors. And I think we all have people like this that we are prone to write off or treat with contempt. Uh, People who threaten our security or our heritage or our way of life or something that we hold dear um, for example, like if you're, if you're at the top of your class and that, this is your righteousness, the top of your class, being at the top of your class, and somebody starts to come up there, you're going to do whatever you can to not let that happen. When they, once they start to unsettle your righteousness, you're going to do whatever it takes to keep them out of there. I was talking with like a neighbor of mine. So this week, this parable has been really messing me up because I've just noticed that I do this all the time. I was talking with a, a neighbor this week. And I had this parable on my mind. And she was telling me how uh, she got her first ponies. And she said that she got them from some people that she said they aren't worth a weed. And as she said this, I later realized she was pointing at my lawn, which was kind of annoying. <laughs> but it kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. But that's not the point. Why? And I was like, why are they not worth a weed? And um, she said that because they neglected these ponies before she, she got them from her. She got the ponies from them because they, they were abusive and neglectful to animals. And for, that, for her, this relegates people outside of, the, outside of the realm of the human, outside of the redeemable. All this to say, there is someone, certainly, or a group of people that we are tempted to put in the, in the realm of this tax collector. People that are on the far right, people that are on the far left, uh, poor people, rich people, people that are different race, people are different ethnicities, 
Um, try to imagine whoever's coming to your mind, you don't have to say it to anybody, but try to imagine that person as a tax collector here in the story. So this tax collector, this trader, he's come to the temple, and we're told that he stands far off. Like, he couldn't even look at God. He couldn't even look at God's face, look into heaven. And he beat his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice that this tax collector, he's got nothing to offer to God. There's no list he has. There's no deeds. There's no righteousness he's bringing with him. Nothing. In fact, not only, this is crazy, not only is he not offering anything to God, he's asking for something. He's asking for something. He's coming to God, and who knows why he's there. Maybe it's the tax collecting thing. Maybe, it's, maybe he's committed adultery. Maybe he realizes he's a bad dad. Maybe, who knows why he's there. Whatever it is, he's realized that he is a sinner. His guilt has overwhelmed him. And the, maybe the rationale even for continuing to exist, why should I even live anymore because of what I've done? Has, it's been questioned because of what he's done and who he is as a sinner. He knows that he deserves God's wrath. He owes God, but he doesn't give God anything like the Pharisee tried to do. He knows he's got nothing to give. Instead, he asks for something. He asks for mercy. On top of everything, he asks God for more. It's outrageous. That big debt, the big debt that God is holding of this man, this man who has, as far as we know it, now notice, this man has not made any resolution to change. He's not made, there's no repentance at this point. There's no promise. He's not, not making any promise to God. This man is asking God to take care of the debt for him. He's saying, be merciful to me. It's outrageous claim of this tax collector. Later in this chapter, same chapter, chapter 18, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and there's this blind guy there. And we learn elsewhere, his name is Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus says to Jesus something similar. He cries out in, the, in your English version, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the words there for have mercy are different than in our text. Bartimaeus is speaking of like physical mercy. Heal me of this physical weakness that I have being blind. But the Greek word in our text translated mercy is a different word. And it literally means this. It means God be propitiated to me a sinner. Now, if you know what propitiated means, you're a weirdo. You should not know what that means. This is, we never use this word in, in English. Um, propitiation means, here, let me give a, an example of propitiation. Propitiation means the um, satisfaction of wrath. I'm going to give a very human illustration. Don't take it any farther than this. I just got ordained. I don't want to get in trouble. Okay, so imagine this. If someone gets really angry, right? Instead of punching a person, they'll punch a punching bag, and they'll let their wrath out on the punching bag over and over again until their anger is satisfied, until it's, until it's propitiated. The wrath is propitiated. The punching bag here is the propitiation. It was less heretically. It was like what happened at the temples. It happened at the temple, the sacrificial system at the temple. Instead of God pouring out his wrath on individual Israelites or on the nation as a whole when they went and you know, went after Baal and all these other detestable gods and detestable things, instead of God pouring out his wrath on Israel, he would pour out his wrath symbolically on the lambs, on the sacrificial animals. And then his wrath toward Israel would be appeased on these animal sacrifices instead of the people. So the tax collector is saying to God, God, satisfy the wrath 
that I know I deserve, satisfy it on someone else. What an outrageous request. <laughs> and one of the things that's interesting is this probably was happening at the evening um, time of prayer when they would sacrifice a lamb. So right in front of him, a lamb was being sacrificed. That's a picture of propitiation right there as he's saying that. He's saying, God, my only hope is if you take care of me because I can't. I can't take care of myself. I'm totally needy and I need your help. I need you to do the unthinkable. I need you to propitiate for me. Just pour out your wrath somewhere else. And look at verse 14 again, because, because of such a request, this outrageous request, the tax collector went home justified. He went home right with God. The wrath was poured out elsewhere. The tax collector went home justified. The Pharisee, the good Pharisee, went home still under God's wrath. The Pharisee, despite all of his supposed merits, is brought low, and the Pharisee, with all of his demerits, is exalted. Now, I often wonder, um, during Jesus' ministry, when he would tell stories like this, or speak about these things. What's going on inside of Jesus? What's going on in his mind and his heart? Um, because Jesus isn't talking about something far off. This isn't like a thought experiment for Jesus. He's not a neutral third party in this story that he just told. Because in fact, Jesus is talking about himself. He is the propitiation. He's the third character in this parable that makes the whole thing work. He's the one that makes this work. The wrath of God was averted from the tax collector onto Jesus when he died on the cross. The tax collector's sins were punished in Jesus, in him, when he died on the cross. Jesus is saying here that he takes the punishment for tax collectors. He takes the punishment for prostitutes. He takes the punishment for Pharisees. He takes the punishment, you know, Pharisees, even good people, he, they even get a chance if they humble themselves before him. Jesus desires us to come to him with empty hands, come to him to trust in his sacrifice for us. God exalts the humble, and Jesus shows us what it looks like here to humble yourself, to come to him with empty hands and just ask for mercy. And this leads us to our last point. Because God exalts the humble, we should be merciful. Luke tells us in the intro that that's the whole point of this. He, this parable is for, and they didn't know this when they were originally hearing it, but this is for people who trusted in their righteousness and treated others with contempt. So according to Luke, this is the main point. This is where we're supposed to end up at the end of this parable. After hearing all this, there's no room for us to be treating others with contempt. We should be, with other people, we should be nothing but merciful and generous in our thinking, and this is the opposite way that I naturally work. And this week, this parable has been driving me nuts because it's not what I do. You know, if there's some, but, okay, so imagine, if there's one kind of person that we can all probably get behind in being contemptuous with, it's self-righteous people, right? People that like to flout directly or indirectly, how great they are, the great things they've done, how great their older people, how great their kids are. Um, nobody likes those people. They're annoying. But Jesus loves those people. Jesus loves the Pharisees. Jesus loves those who he's talking to, right? He, this is grace and mercy in him even telling this story to them. He loves them. He wants them. He doesn't want them to go away from this story not justified. He loves tax collectors. He loves 
righteous people too. He's saying, look at your hearts, y'all. Give up your righteousness. I'm the only one that can take care of this huge righteousness problem that you have. I want you too. I want the tax collector. I want the Pharisee too. Now let's see if that's true. Where, where does this apply in how we relate to um, unbelievers and how this applies to how we relate to each other? One thing that this parable teaches us is that there's no righteousness in us that we can muster up in order to make ourselves right with God. Now, what does that mean in our relationships with people who have not trusted in Jesus yet, whether they're tax collectors types or they're Pharisee types? It means that, here's, here's what it means. It means that our desire... Our goal is to, is to, so to speak, is with our unbelieving friends, family, coworkers, is to love them by not making them good people. It's to love them by not making them good people. I'm in campus ministry, and so I have a lot of uh, non-Christians, students in my in, in RUF there, and this is something that I struggle with. This is a struggle for me. <laughs> I, want, I want to tell them, stop sleeping with your boyfriend. Stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Stop smoking pot. Start going to church. This is what I want to, to, to like scream at them sometime. Part of me just wants to scream this at them sometime, my non-Christian students. But what would, if I got my way, what would that achieve? They would end up good, righteous, cleaned up people, made in my image, that at the end of the day, go home not justified. They would go home, leave college, not right with God. Our mission as God's people is not to make good, upright, moral people that are ultimately made in our image. Our desire, our hope, is to, is to find places where we can introduce them to Jesus, the propitiation for their sins. Instead of winning people to our righteous political views, our moral life that I'm living, I ask them, just ask them, what do they think about Jesus? Meditate on that together. Instead of focusing on them and me, focus, bring the spotlight onto Jesus and just let the Holy Spirit do his work in their lives. Just trust the Holy Spirit as we, as we get to tell them, talk to them, hear them, even speak about Jesus. Tax collectors and Pharisees, our family members that are not Christians, our coworkers, our friends, they need Jesus. They don't need their own righteousness. They don't need their own righteousness. They're still lost in their sins with their own righteousness. They need Jesus. And when it comes to our brothers and sisters in the church, this tax collector... He has a lot of repenting to do, and he's going to repent the rest of his life, and he's still not going to be done with it by the end of his life. And he's going to need his brothers and sisters to not treat him with contempt, but to be merciful for him. You know, we don't even know what he was in the, I mentioned earlier, we don't even know what he was there for. If we expect him to go and live, you know, this perfectly moral life, following the Ten Commandments perfectly, it's not going to happen. He has, a, he has his own story. The Pharisee has his own story. And they're, they're, the rest of their life is going to be repenting. God is, has not made us perfect. He's making us perfect. We'll be perfect when we die or when Jesus returns. But in the meantime, when those places get exposed, where a brother or sister is thinking like a Pharisee, where they're living like a tax collector, God still loves them. He is still patient with them. He's still merciful with them. He still bears with them. And he saved us so that we would bear with them as well. You know, in everything that Jesus tells us to do here in this parable, we need help. Every Christian, we need help to let go of our righteousness. We need help to humble ourselves. We need help 
to show mercy. I need Jesus working in my heart to trust him. None of this happens without him working in us. And so he gives us this meal. When we take the bread and we eat it and we take the cup and we drink it, we are saying, God, I trust in the propitiation of your son, Jesus, for me. And we're made partakers in his sacrifice as we, as we participate in this meal. We eat and drink. Just like I need physical food for my physical nourishment to do physical things, I need the spiritual food for spiritual, spiritual nourishment for, so I can love my brothers and sisters, so I can put down my righteousness again and again, because we keep trying to take it up. But if you're not one who has trusted in Jesus, if you're still holding on to your, something in your life that is your righteousness, then this table is not for you. This table is for those who have confessed that they are sin-prone every area of their lives. And they're deserving of wrath. And instead of trying to work harder and do better, find some other righteousness, they've given up and they've trusted that God has punished their sin in the sacrifice of Jesus. But at the same time, why would you refuse? This is the best deal in history, that you're all out and then you ask for more and he gives it to you. It's the best deal in history. This is why it's called the gospel. This is why it's called good news. I would invite you maybe to just investigate and be curious about what is it that might be holding you back from coming and trusting in Jesus and taking the bread in 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 the cup. Finally, if you have weak faith like me, meditating, you know, meditating on this this week, my mind has been flooded with all the types of people that I look down on, all those particular people that I look down on, especially in my mind, and I treat them with contempt. There's embarrassing places in my life where, and I named some earlier, I didn't tell you which ones, but there's some embarrassing places in my life where I'm trusting in my own righteousness. If you have weak faith like me, then this meal is especially for you. Jesus joyfully tells us to eat and drink, and be strengthened. Two weeks after this, he told this parable. On the night before his propitiation, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this meal to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith so that we would do your will and give you glory. Give us the benefits of your propitiation. Meet us by your spirit as we eat and drink in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.